Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. That's awesome. Well, good morning. Good morning. I want to welcome you, especially if you're new or you're visiting this morning. We're really glad that you're here with us. We're continuing our new series, like Andrew said, called Chasing After the Wind, and we are studying the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, there are several books of wisdom in the Bible, like the book of Proverbs and the book of Job, (laughs) but Ecclesiastes doesn't really sound like the kind of wisdom (laughs) that are in those books, Um, even the kind of wisdom you expect to hear in the Bible at all. I think it can be downright disorienting at times when you read through the book of Ecclesiastes. I read it, and I get, this, I get this picture of this jaded King Solomon, you know, sitting back in his throne going, gosh, we're all gonna die. Like, just like, might as well eat, drink, and be merry. But it makes us start to question as we read through this really incredible book. And I think that's why that context, context is really, really key. It's really key. And as Anders said last week, we don't know for sure who actually wrote this book. The language here is actually, that's used here in this book is about 500 years after Solomon's life. And so it's more likely that it's either a compilation of Solomon's writings by another author or their way of creatively writing from Solomon's point of view. So there really are two different voices here. There are two different perspectives in this book, and I think that's so incredibly helpful. I think Solomon is really a great figure for the author to use. I mean, what a better test subject than someone who has truly experienced every facet of life. (laughs) What we see in this book is that he is on this quest. He's on this quest to find what is meaningful and truly satisfying. He wants to know, when it's all said and done, what do we have to show for it? What do we have to show for it? What do we gain, he asks over and over. See, Solomon is looking for something that really lasts. He's examining life under the sun. He uses that phrase quite a bit. Really, it's as though he's looking as though life on this earth is all there is. And he asks this classic question, is is this really as good as it gets? I mean, you hear that, that eluded phrase, that eluded question throughout this book. And, and I love that question. It's such a raw question because I think it's, it's one that we've probably asked more times than we'd like to admit because we've all been disillusioned to some degree by the false claims of this world. We get shortchanged. Things don't seem to last, and they don't fill that deep sense of longing that we have I think it's because this world really wasn't ever created to fully satisfy those desires. And and I think it's meant to be, this world and those desires are meant to be a pointer to the one who can. See, this book is actually a beautiful defense for our need for Jesus because it looks unflinchingly at how bleak and how empty life can be and all these alternatives to life without faith in God without faith in God. And in our passage today, what we're looking at are really just three different roads 
that Solomon walked down in his attempts to find a lasting and meaningful life. Those roads are the road of enlightenment, the road of effort, and the road of enjoyment. So we're going to look at those today, but first let's, let's just invite the Holy Spirit to be with us. God, we do. We just ask for your Holy Spirit to come. Would you meet us here in this place? We invite you here, God. We invite you here. Lord, I pray that everyone here, me included, we would just be soft to your voice, be willing to hear what you have to say to us today, that we would be willing to hear your truth, and God, that you would just open our hearts to receive from you. Lord, we need you. Would you just soften us to receive your comfort, your encouragement today? And we do. We just give you all the praise and the glory. Would you lead this time in the name of Jesus? Amen. Amen. Well, we are looking at Ecclesiastes 1.12 through the end of chapter 2 today. But before we do, let me just personalize this a little bit. Has anyone ever actually asked you, or you actually asked yourself, what makes my life satisfying and meaningful? What makes my life satisfying and meaningful? And for a moment, just think about what your answer would be, what comes to mind, what comes to mind, no matter really what comes to mind or what your answer is, the real question under that question is what makes you feel worthwhile? What makes you feel worthwhile? What gives you a sense of worth or identity? And for most of us, whether we realize it or not, we can easily fill that void with any list of things, even just depending on the hour of the day. But we are made to worship. We are made to adore and desire. And here on this earth, it can be so easy for us to turn our attention to created things, right? That we can see with our eyes, that we can touch, feel, taste, that we can experience rather than putting that attention on Jesus, our creator. I heard it once said that we all are idol makers. We all have to find something to get that sense of meaning, worth, and identity from. And, and if it's not God, then it's an idol. Timothy Keller says an idol is any good thing, so it's a good thing, any good thing that we have turned into an ultimate thing, an ultimate thing. And what we see today is that Solomon, he's asking himself this very question, and he's using himself kind of as a test subject, <laughs> as a test subject. He's conducting this experiment, and he's testing different things under the sun on earth, and he tests different variables with the same experiment, and he tests wisdom and knowledge, as we'll see, and he tests work and success, and he tests pleasure and possessions. Solomon goes all the way down, <laughs> all the way down each of these roads, and he gets farther down the roads than any of us probably ever will. And here, at the beginning of our passage, he starts off actually by giving us his conclusion, giving us his conclusion before he gives us any of the, the juicy details. <laughs> so let's start in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that has been done under the sun. All of them are meaningless a chasing after the wind. What, a crooked, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. You see, throughout, all, throughout this whole book, Solomon uses this word, 
Hevel, which Andrew touched on last week. And Hevel means vanity, futility, vapor, smoke, or breath. And it's used to describe something fleeting, here today and then gone in a blink of an eye. It's kind of like the kitty bubbles that I blow for Haven, okay? So she she sees them, she loves them. You should see her with bubbles, they're the best. Um, But her eyes are just filled with delight and wonder, and she sees them and she chases after them, thinking that she can actually catch them. And the moment she touches them, what happens? They pop, right? They pop, they go away. And as we see with Solomon, he ventures down each of these roads, and over and over he says this word. He says, they're hevel. They're chasing after the wind. They're chasing after bubbles. <laughs> and he then walks down each path so that we can see for ourselves. You see, I think the author wants us to learn from him so that we don't waste our time getting the same results, getting the same results. So first is the road of enlightenment. Here what we see is Solomon living for wisdom. He's living for knowledge. In chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, he said, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also madness and folly. And then verses 12 and through 14 in chapter 2, then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do what has not already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, but the fool walks in darkness. Now Solomon was already, as we know, the wisest man in the world, but he decides to take it all the way. I'm just going to take it all the way, all the way. And what if that's what he actually lived for? That's what he put all of his time and focus and energy and resources toward. What would he gain? What would he gain? And, and what we see, actually, we see this in 1 Kings 4. He, I mean, he, this guy speaks like 3,000 proverbs. I mean, he has like, he's written thousands of songs. Uh, he speaks about the knowledge of trees and the knowledge of animals. So he's like this botanist and a zoologist and a musician and an author. And I mean, the list just goes on. And, and people from all nations around the world come to see this guy, to hear his wisdom, to hear his wisdom. This is a very impressive wise guy, a very impressive wise guy. But knowing the most didn't help him either. Knowing the most didn't help him either. It says in in chapter 1, verses 17 through 18, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. And then in verses 14 and 16, chapter 2, but I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. And I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not long be remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise wise too must die. See, Solomon has two major issues with wisdom. First is that it cannot help you escape death. No matter how smart you are, I'm sorry to say, but you are going to die. So no matter how smart you are. And that's the same as if you live foolishly or if you live wisely. Now, obviously, it's better to live wisely than foolishly, but the futility of wisdom is that in the end, it can't save you from death. Blaise Pascal Pascal says, as men have not been able to cure death, (laughs) misery or ignorance, 
love that. They have, not, they have taken to just not thinking about them. Well, so as to become happy. <laughs> so just not think about it. I mean, do we let the reality of death, or what I would say our eternal perspective, change how we live? Does that change how we live, or do we insulate ourselves from that reality? That's easy to do, easy to want to do. How would it change how you view the things you value in your life if you had that perspective? The second limitation is that wisdom can bring frustration and sorrow. The irony here is that wisdom can actually lead to a better life. That's what wisdom is. It can lead to a better life, but it might not lead to a happier life. I don't think there's ever been a time in history where we have had access to so much information before. I mean, the internet and social media has allowed us to know more about the world and know more about ourselves and know more about a way lot more other people than ever before. So we're living in this generation where we are more educated and more well-informed, and yet it has not necessarily made us happier people, has it? And sometimes quite the opposite. See, wisdom and knowledge, yeah, they are essential for life, but the pursuit of them for their own sake as a means of fulfillment, well, that's, that's never going to satisfy. So how do we walk down this path of enlightenment? How do we gain wisdom and knowledge that isn't just meaningless? In Colossians 2, verses 2 through 3 says, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, in Jesus, we gain real wisdom and knowledge for life, and he takes us by the hand, and instead of just giving us all the answers up front, he says, walk with me, and I'll show you. Walk with me, I'll show you. See, Jesus is here to help us navigate life, to learn and see things like he does. He is this amazing resource in our life to give us wisdom and knowledge that lasts. Next, Solomon goes down the road of effort. That's our second road. And here he is living for work and success. In chapter 2, verse 10, he says, "'My heart took delight in all my labor.'" And this was the reward for my toil. When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And then in chapter 2, 17 through 21, so I hated life because the work that, that is done under the sun is grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun, for a person must labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. Then they must leave it all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. So here we see Solomon deciding to walk down this road. He's going to let work and success be the meaning of his life. He's going to create this career-based life. That's what he's going to do and focus on. And he soon realizes the same end. In verses 22 and 23 of chapter 2, he says, What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their, all their days 
and their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. See this this word here in the Hebrew for toil. It's a mal, and it's it's wearisome, heavy effort, worry, grievance, labor, miserable pain, sorrow. <laughs> wow, that's this has a real negative connotation to it. I mean, this is this kind of backbreaking, soul wrenching activity that's the life out of you. And I think we can all relate to that to some degree. We've all had jobs like that at some point. See, work, it does. It wears you down. And someone recently did this major study where they asked tons of people, if we gave you a 25th hour of the day, if someone could suddenly give you one hour for every day, what would you do with it? What do you think they all said? All 85% of them said, Sleep, yes, sleep. <laughs> yes, it works. Work wears you down. It drains your strength, and and heck, that's just during the day. I mean, at night, what does it say here? You worry, right? You worry about what will tomorrow bring. And the more you build your life on work, the more you build your life on your career and on success, the more you're going to experience this kind of worry and fear. I mean, some of you, you're in management positions, you're in high-performing businesses where you know the reality of this all too well. You know this. Sometimes you bring home work, work home with you. Every night you're stressing, you're anxious because you feel like work does not end for you. Here he says, guys, eventually, the reality is it's going to be enjoyed by somebody else. I mean, this is really frustrating because. You work really hard all your life, and then someone else gets to benefit the benefit of it after you're gone. And who knows whether they'll appreciate it or use it wisely. So what do we do? Well, in Colossians 3:23 through 24, it says, "Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will be receiving an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. This is the Lord Christ you are serving." If you walk this path, but instead of working for yourself or your boss or that promotion or that status or that recognition, and you do it for God, you do it for God, then then you are working for Christ. He's your boss now, and then the beautiful part of this is that your reward is no longer bound on earth. It's not bound on earth. It's bound in heaven. Your reward is not going to be left to somebody else. In Him, the fruit of your labor is no longer temporal; it's eternal. How beautiful is that? Jesus breaks this endless cycle of effort and striving and gives us this peace and the satisfaction that what we can do and how we do work unto the Lord matters a lot to God. It matters a lot. Lastly, we see Solomon walking down this road of enjoyment.、Mm, this is a good one: living for pleasure and living for possessions. Okay, this is the last road, chapter two, verses one through three. I said to myself, "Come now, <laughs> I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good." But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. 
So see, we, right here, Solomon is pursuing, indulging in pleasure. That sounds good, right? <laughs> and the first stop, I mean, the first stop he makes on this road is alcohol. I mean, you love how methodical he is about this. He's not messing around. He's, take, he's talking very seriously. Like, I have searched how to cheer my body with wine. It's like, oh, yeah, let's find that out. Okay. But he sees how alcohol can be so deceptive. I mean, I think that's so true. Even in the beer commercials we see on TV, we, we always see people having just good times, you know, partying at football games. And we never see beer commercials where, you know, you see a, a father yelling at his family. You never see commercials where Johnny Walker's sitting in an AA meeting. <laughs> you don't. That's not the reality, right? They're trying to sell something. And, and what Solomon's saying here is, guys, look at the search I'm making here. Look at, look at the path I'm taking and the end, because I think some of us have conducted this test. And maybe we're not as honest with ourselves as Solomon was. In his drinking, he's searching for something. What are we searching for in the substances that, that we try out and, and take in? You know, I know substances might numb the hurt and the chaos around us and definitely provides that little momentary burst of pleasure, but we realize all too soon, especially that very next morning, that they are just as empty as Solomon said. Next, he moves on to building great projects. Building great projects in verses four through six, he says, I undertook great projects. <laughs> I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. And I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. He tries doing it all. He does all the stuff. I mean, for some of us, sure, we like our landscaping. <laughs> we like mowing our lawn. Some of us, I mean, some of you, you actually build things with your hands for a living. You love that stuff. There's some of us, we really like DIY projects, right? We like spending lots and lots of money on materials to save money and do it ourselves <laughs> in the end, right? None of us would actually say out loud, I think, that we believe that having, you know, a really nice lawn or a really cute decor is actually going to be the source of meaningful life. We're not going to actually say that. But, but if we look at this stuff that we get excited about, if we look at the stuff we daydream about, if we look at the stuff we spend our money on and get anxious about, then this kind of stuff might be right up there too. It's good to look at. Next, he tests wealth and possessions. Wealth and possessions. Verses 7 and 8. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the, treasure, and the treasure of kings and provinces. And I know this, when you read this, it might be easy to say, well, I don't pursue pleasure like that. I mean, I'm not like going all the way like that. But then again, I think we might be a little wrong because we might not have as much as Solomon did in the terms of wealth and possessions, but we still put a lot of hope in them. We still put a lot of hope in them. Uh, that next promotion or that next raise or... Or we just we engage in that retail therapy. We go online shopping to feel a little better about our lives. And I'm not talking down here. I'm talking to myself, yeah. But Solomon does exactly what we all do. We all do. And he turns out, it turns out that having it all is just as empty as not having enough. That's really what he's saying. Having it all is just as empty as not having enough. And then in the end, this last one he pursues is really interesting. It's entertainment and sex. In verses 8, he says, I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. 
He has his very own private concerts and entertainment. And maybe we don't think, well, I can't really relate with that. I don't have Taylor Swift just showing up in my house, you know, giving me a free concert. You know, like、uh, that's not our reality. But yet again, it kind of is because if you've got an internet connection, you have more unprecedented access. To entertainment than anyone ever in the history of mankind. <laughs> there are so many different choices out there, but one of the real problems with that constant access to entertainment is, though, is it cannot deliver obviously on the meaningful life that we want. But what it can do, and what it does really, really well, and we need to be aware of this, is it it can distract you from the emptiness of your life, right? That's what it does. It distracts us. One writer said, "The constant distraction of our culture shields us from the kind of deep and honest reflection needed to ask why we exist and what is true."、Mm. And then, certainly, not last.、Um, then, certainly, last but not least, Solomon thoroughly explores the pleasures of sex, and we know from his life that Solomon had thousands of concubines. And this is kind of revealing, <laughs> because we like so many other things, whether it's alcohol or money. We see that there are diminishing returns. Diminishing returns. In other words, they thrill you at first, but then it fades. We always need more. That's how addictions really start to happen. You used to have just one drink, and now you don't remember how many you had. You know, and and or you want you needed this much money, but now you need more money. You know, it just keeps it keeps growing. Everything keeps growing, and honestly, we have to be so careful because this kind of stuff is what gets a hold of our lives. This kind of stuff gets a hold of our lives, and and with sex, there is diminishing returns, and it's especially diabolical. C.S. Lewis he actually says that our broken sexual desires they're not like our appetite for food, where we're fed and then we're satisfied. He compares it to a bonfire, where the more you feed it, the fire only grows. It's never quite enough. I mean, if a thousand women, if a thousand women were not enough for Solomon, then let that be a wake-up call for us, because whatever sexual experience you think you need outside of the obedience to God, in the end, it is not going to deliver. It won't. At the end of each of these roads, Solomon says, "What does he say all the time in this book? It was all meaningless, meaningless. Nothing was really gained. Nothing was gained. They were they were empty wells that, no matter how much you tried to fill in, it would always go dry. It would always go dry. And if you're looking for something other than God to get that sense of meaning and worthwhileness, it is going to fail." And this is what Solomon sees. It's going to fail. See, even though we're not rich and famous <laughs> to be able to be like Solomon and do all the things that he did, we have to still be careful. We have to be careful that we don't just put, say there's something wrong with the road. We have to be careful we don't just blame the road and not. Say that, hey, no, it's actually something inside of me that might be broken. Because we have a tendency to say that, well, it's just because I didn't go far enough down the road. You know, I didn't go far enough down the road. But really, that just means we're getting on this whole disenchantment cycle. Have you ever been on that cycle before? It's so, so hard. Because once you have the thing you think you wanted, <laughs> and you realize that it's still not enough. You, you gotta go, go get more, right? You gotta. Well, that promotion wasn't enough. I didn't feel like I gained the respect I was looking for, the success or the achievement. And, and so you just keep looking for more and more, and it keeps 
letting you down. And we all keep thinking, well, man, if I just had gotten that thing over there, then I would have had a better life. We blame the lack. We blame the lack, and we don't, we don't see that really the problem is that the road itself was never meant to bring us meaning and life. So in the end, how do we walk these roads without making them into ultimate things? Because it's so easy to do. It's so easy to do. These are good things given to us by God. I think the first thing we need to see is that each of these roads and each of these pursuits, they really are a gift from God. They really are. And I think it's incredibly important that we see it as a gift. Solomon ends our passage today in verses 24 and 26, and this is what he says. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and, fill sa- and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless in a chasing after the wind. I think it's so striking that now at the end, he discovers where satisfaction really comes from. It's not from striving. It's not from striving. It's from these gifts. It's from gifts from God. In other words, these things are not God, but they are gifts from God. And when we start to see this, when we keep these things in perspective and in their proper place, it actually causes us to enjoy life even more, not less. That's a lie from the enemy. (laughs) The Lord actually wants us to enjoy life more, not less. And when we're not bound to those things, we have freedom to actually enjoy them, to actually enjoy them. We can enjoy wisdom. We can enjoy work. We can enjoy pleasure as a true gift from God because these really are meant to be blessings in our life. And I think this mindset really changes things for us. It really changes things. One commentator said, in themselves, rightly used, the basic things of food, drink, work, and sex, well, they're sweet and they are good. What breaks them is our hunger to get out of them more than they can give. More than they can give. So we see them first as a gift, and lastly, we see them as a pointer to our real need for Jesus, our real need for Jesus. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life, the path of life. You will find, you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And in John 1010, though we don't have this on the slide, I have come that they might have life and have it to the Oh, that's what God wants for us. That's what God wants for us. What all of us need, truly, what we need truly is an identity, first and foremost, rooted in Jesus. We need our identity rooted in Jesus. What we need to hear down in the deepest recesses of our souls is, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. I love you. That's what we need. And so much so that I sent my son Jesus to die in your place so that we could be together, so that we would not be separated. What we need to do is trust in that great work that Jesus has done on our behalf, knowing that we don't deserve it. 
See, to know yourself as that beloved son or daughter of God and to live out of that place of significance and worth and value, that is the ultimate place of freedom. That is the ultimate place of freedom. And it's the essence of the gospel itself. It's the essence of the gospel. When we walk with Jesus down these roads of life, no matter how broken we come and how broken we are, we can actually start to enjoy these gifts he's given us. Because we walk not from a place of empty searching, but from a place of contentment, knowing that we are loved, knowing that we are secure. Jesus has freed us. He's freed us to learn and work and enjoy without chasing after the wind, without chasing after the wind. Well, let's, let's go ahead and close our time and, and let's stand. We're going to uh, actually take corporate communion together today. So as the worship team comes back up, if you haven't picked up the elements yet, go ahead and feel free to head on back there, grab them, bring them back to your seats. If you are here today, and I'm just going to kind of lay this out here. For those of you that you might just be curious about Jesus, maybe you're skeptical about him, you haven't actually invited him into your life, but there is something inside of you that really hungers for more. You hunger for more than you're experiencing right now. Maybe that's Jesus tugging on your heart. Maybe that's him today saying, hey, what would it be like if you started following me? And I think there's a beautiful invitation for those of us that have not given our life for Jesus to make that your day today, to make that your, your choice today to follow him, to say, you know what, I've been doing these paths alone and it has not been working out. <laughs> God, would you, would you take my life? Would you lead me? And Lord, forgive me for the ways that I have not followed you, that I have turned to the created things and not you. And, and I would just invite you during this time of communion, would you just pray to the Lord? today and, and invite him in. We would love to just bless that later as we have a time of prayer. With the rest of us, uh, in taking communion, we're both remembering and we are proclaiming Christ's life, death, and his resurrection. So with your families and friends at your seats, let's just take the cup and the bread together. The Lord Jesus, on the night of his arrest, took bread, and after giving thanks to God, he broke it. He broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this cup is my new covenant sealed in my blood and shed for you, for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup together. Lord Jesus, we do. We thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. What that means for us, the freedom that it brings us, we thank you, Jesus. Thank you for making a way for us to know you as our Father and our Lord to live in communion with you all of our days. We just uh, ask for your forgiveness in all the ways that we've replaced you with things in this world. God, would you help us to seek you first in all things? Amen. Well, 
Thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.